0: Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Detour Life. Detour Life is a game changer for both family law professionals and clients alike. Detour Life is an innovative online program which guides clients to easily input and organize the exhaustive document and financial disclosure process and provides professionals with streamlined and secure case management. In addition, Detour Life has comprehensive client onboarding, a secure document repository, income and expense sync, parenting plan agreement features, and much more. I use Detour Life myself and honestly one of my favorite features and one that my clients love as well is that they can securely link all of their financial accounts directly to the Detour Life platform so that their information is automatically uploaded and updated as time goes on. So whether you're getting a divorce or are a divorce professional, I urge you to check it out yourself. Go to Detour Life, that's D-T-O-U-R dot L-I-F-E, and sign up for their free 14-day trial. Then use code SUSAN20 to get 20% off the cost of subscription.
1: Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast. As horrible as it is, it's better to face the truth and live a fairy tale. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners going through divorce in the end have come to that conclusion, you know, living through a failed marriage and coming out the other end.
0: Hello and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond Podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. And today I am joined by another friend who was introduced to me by our other friend, Jill Sharer murray the wonderful author of Big Wild Love. And uh, you've all seen Jill's TEDx uh, on the unstoppable power of letting go. But Jill introduced me to Sylvia Fodi, who is here with me today. And Sylvia has a story that, uh, it, it, that has to be heard. Um, I have to tell you, I just read the book. So let me, uh, introduce the book to you all. It's called the Nazi's granddaughter, how I discovered my grandfather was a war criminal. Um, and Sylvia's going to give you a little, just, you know, synopsis of w- what that's about. And you're, I know you're all out there wondering, well, what does this have to do with divorce, Susan? But trust me, there are many correlations between what Sylvia's experience and her family's experience, um, a historical perspective of what happened in her family, with issues of denial and loss of identity, which I think is going to resonate with all of you. So first, Sylvia, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me here today. We, I put you through a lot to get you on this screen, so I appreciate your taking the time. Hi, Susan. I'm so
1: happy to be here, truly.
0: Well, and as I just mentioned, I I loved the book. For those who are watching the video version, I'm holding up a, a cover, uh, the cover of the book. It's a picture of Sylvia holding a picture of her grandfather. Um, and I read the entire book and was just enthralled. And, and I read a lot of books. I'm a big, I've always my entire life. I was the kid at the dinner table who had the book propped up against the plate. And your mom would be like, not at the dinner table. And I found this just, I, I couldn't put it down. It, it is such, there's so much about this particular book and about your experience and your your way of putting it out there that I thought resonated on both an emotional and historical level, especially with you know what's happening in our world today and what happened in our world in history. So if you could just give us a little bit of a history um, of of your family um, in Lithuania and your grandfather um, for so that people have an idea of of you know just the legend that was your grandfather.
1: Sure, Susan. Uh, well, I grew up in Chicago in Market Park, uh, super Lithuanian community. Went to kindergarten not even speaking English yet because I was in isolated Lithuanian community. And grew up always hearing wonderful things about my grandfather, Jonas Nareka, who was a World War II hero because he fought so bravely against the communists. So uh, he died killed by the Russians in a KGB prison, executed uh, by two bullets because he was trying to lead a rebellion against the Russians um, at the tail end of World War II you know he's got streets named after him he's got a grammar school named after him he got the high my mom in 1997 and i was with her got the highest honor given to somebody posthumously on behalf of her father called the the cross of the Vitis so anyway my mom was going to write this book and her father the Lithuanian community there here had asked her to do it But she got really sick unexpectedly uh, in the year 2000. She was only 60 years old. So she was on her deathbed and had run out of time to work on this big project of her lifetime and passed it on to me and asked me to write the book. At the time, I was a full-time journalist. So anyway, when your mom is asking you something like this, there's only one answer to give. So I said yes. And, you know, I thought I was going to write a wonderful story about my grandfather, World War II hero is going to be a rather quiet story, maybe just for Lithuanians. Very early on into the project, uh, like about 10 months later, after my mom dies, I'm in Lithuania and I'm in the school named after my grandfather. And I'm talking to the director and asking him how he decided to name the school after my grandfather. You know, he tells me, that before they had this horrible Russian name because the Russians had occupied Lithuania for over like 50 years. And once Lithuania got its independence in 1990, they wanted a good Lithuanian uh, patriotic name. And because my grandfather was born there in that town, they named the school after him. But then he says, but you know, I got a lot of grief over naming the school after your grandfather. I had not ever heard this at the time I was 38 years old. And I said, grief from who? And he says, the Jews. And I'm like, what could the Jews possibly say about, you know, my wonderful, magnificent, legendary grandfather whom I love so much? And he's looking at me like I'm the idiot, you know, because apparently it's an open secret in Lithuania and everybody knew about it. And it turns out a lot of people in Chicago knew about it except me. And he says, well, he was accused of killing Jews. I almost fainted when he told me that. I was completely unprepared for it. Uh, It came as a complete and total shock to me. You know, then I come back to Chicago and I talk to my father and other community members here. And I'm like, have you ever heard this crazy story of Jonas Noreka killing Jews? I'm like, oh, yeah, we heard it. And I'm like, what? You know, everybody knew this except me. And so that's how it started you know, we'll get into more of this. I had gone through a long period of denial and, uh, it took me a long time to finally decide to look into all that. So that's kind of the setup for this.
0: It's actually in that moment, as I was reading that in the book, and I just, for, for my listeners, your grandfather, I mean, there are plaques on walls, buildings that are dedicated to him. You were basically Lithuanian royalty almost in your neighborhood here in Chicago. Your grandfather was larger than life. Um, Your mother was a young girl when your grandfather was executed. You obviously never had that opportunity to meet him, but he was truly this legend. And so it's you describing in the book that moment in time when that gentleman leaned over to you and said, you know, he was rumored to have killed Jews. And you just described it as you almost passed out. You know, I hear that from people all the time in the divorce process of, I thought I had the best marriage in the world. I thought we were the perfect family. I thought, you know, this, I thought that. And their their reality is completely upended. And they feel almost that, you know, they've suddenly landed in, in some alternate reality that they can't comprehend. And that's where I saw that, that you know, juxtaposition or not even juxtaposition. It's really sort of parallel lines here of, you know, in so many ways, We even once you heard this, there's still that desire to deny. You use that word denial. And many people will say to me, after time has passed. You know, I knew the marriage was going downhill, but I denied it to myself or to everyone. And it took you a long time to work through that process before you could actually look deeper into this, didn't it?
1: It took me nearly 10 years. You know, that's why the book took me 20 years to write, but 10 years of that was like this really difficult psychological work of uh taking off that good halo that my grandfather had, and that had really affected my own identity growing up um, here in Chicago as, as a good Lithuanian. I, I somehow really thought Lithuanians were only good. You know, that they had absolutely no dark side to them, that they were these idyllic people, that they were the victims. That, uh, you know, because they were crushed by the Nazis and they were crushed by the communists and poor Lithuania is just the victim who was standing by wringing its hands as the Jews were getting killed left and right. And it had nothing to do with it. And, um, you know, what my research ended up uncovering is that it wasn't just my grandfather, like a lot of the country was involved in it because of their anti-Semitism. And that's so it's a story of just one man, but it's really a story of the entire country. And that's why um, that's why I was so freaked out about this, because it wasn't just me and my grandfather. It was going to be like the whole country of Lithuania involved in this. And who am I to up on this story? You know, um, so, yeah, the denial was very, very strong. Because I was really, really scared of what was going to happen on the other side if I ever got through the denial and if I ever actually really wanted to put my mind to discovering the truth.
0: What helped you or what what pushed you along in that process where facing the truth was the option to choose rather than continued denial?
1: Well, my background was journalism. The granddaughter was like this little girl, but the journalist, you know, was an adult and more professional. But like in my head, I was always warring between the little girl and the adult. So the journalist in me really, you know, was a taskmaster and telling the granddaughter, we have to figure this out. We have to find out the truth. Even as bad as it is, the truth is the truth. And you can't whitewash the truth. You know, and the, the granddaughter was like, No, I love my grandfather, you know, I, I can't do this to him. I can't do this to Lithuania. I can't do this to myself. So the journalist in me won, and then and then, you know, I, I'm a practicing Catholic. So that's like this other strong pillar in me. And so through prayer, also really leaning on whatever the truth is, as as horrible as it is, it's better to face the truth than live a fairy tale. And I'm sure a lot of your uh, listeners going through divorce in the end have come to that conclusion. You know, living through a failed marriage and uh, coming out the other end. So it was it was the journalist in me, and it was you know the faith-filled Catholic in me. I think that finally, again, it took ten years. This was not an overnight thing.
0: It takes work. Anytime we're working through that denial and. You know, as as you said, also it, it wasn't just denial because even when you start to turn to face the the reality or the truth of what happened, then there's that loss of identity. And for you, as you just described, um, it wasn't just the loss of the identity of being the granddaughter of a hero, but you were actually upending the identity of your country, and that's what you know I think landed you on the front page of the New York times above the fold folks, right? Front page, New (laughs) York times above the fold. That's where, you know, we're earth shattering world making news is. And that's where you found yourself uh, when you did, you know, put the book out. So tell us a little bit about that experience.
1: I grew up very Lithuanian, considered myself very Lithuanian, very proud of my heritage and really, you know, in some in some ways felt like a little princess of uh, the community because of my grandfather. People always tell me, well, it's not your fault of what your grandfather did. This has nothing to do with you. But yet when he was the hero, I was basking in the glory of that. So it does work both ways. You know, When when your grandfather, you've discovered, you know, played a role in in the Holocaust and not a minor one either it affects you too I mean intellectually you tell yourself it has nothing to do with me but it really does splash all over you and kind of seep in and 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 does a head game you know to you and it really started making me feel very guilty uh very ashamed I wanted to just crawl in a hole get in a fetal position, you know, and make this all go away. But the shame of it, too, you know, to have to face this. Up, if your grandfather did this, this is kind of, you, you think this is in your blood. Yeah. And And again, it's not just my grandfather. It was, you know, he was not the only one with this issue and this problem. So it wasn't just me upending his story. I was upending the country's story about its role in the holocaust so so that you're right i started going public with the story um through through an article in salon and somehow that went viral within weeks of that release of that story the new york times reporter tracked me down and called me and i'm sitting in my home in chicago and he's like do you realize you're on tv in russia you're like no. What? I'm like why? Like no. And he said, "Yeah, I'm watching you. Uh your picture and your photo, you know, you're on TV in Russia and I had to call you to find out what is going on." And that's how that's how it all started and how I ended up on the front page above the fold in the New York Times.
0: I well, which, you know, is had to be an additional experience in all of this, a little existential maybe, because now truly your family's personal story that now upends a nation's personal story has gone international Um, when you get to the New York Times uh, above that fold. And you had to have faced not only, we've talked a little bit about your denial and perhaps maybe your family's denial, but now you're really like changing um, a, a larger narrative. And I know you faced denial and probably anger because you were upending the you use the term fairy tale. And again, many people see their their marriages in that fairy tale context. I hear all the time, we were the perfect family. We were the family everyone wanted to be, right? You know, and, and people truly are invested in that. And then the breaking down of the walls and the accepting that that perfection or all of that shininess is not was not true and may never have been true as it was in you know your family's case that takes a lot of strength to to get up every day face it and in your case put it down in 20 years into a book hello listeners it's susan and you know, one of the things that happens all the time is that you send me in questions by email or DM all the time about your divorce or questions that you might have. And you know, there's so much volume, it's hard for me to get back to everyone, although I do try. But what I thought might be helpful is to do an Ask Susan Anything episode. So I'll go through all of the FAQs that come in, but I also want to give you a chance to write in now with your questions. So email your question to divorceandbeyondpod at gmail.com, and you might just hear an answer on the upcoming Ask Susan Anything Divorce and Beyond episode. Stay tuned for more insights and just more of this incredible story on overcoming denial and loss of identity from the Nazi's granddaughter and author, Sylvia Fodi
1: The truth to me is immutable, It's objective, what happened has happened, and you cannot change what happened as much as you would like to, as much of a spin you would like to put on it. And so I hung on to that. Once I finally realized that my only job is to write the truth, that sort of freed me of all those negative
0: emotions to focus on just telling the truth to the best of my ability. If you are enjoying this episode, check out last week's show, with leading divorce financial professional Heather Locus to hear five smart strategies for saving money in your divorce.
1: Taking the time to get education when people can, like hopefully listening to this podcast and ideally organizing their finances is gonna save them money when they go to interview attorneys, mediators, other professionals, because no matter how much the professionals wanna help, I mean, divorce ultimately is about parenting time and finances. And now we return to today's show.
0: You know, we talked a little bit about the losing the identity. You know, I, I guess in, I'm thinking about it as we've talked about. In one way, you reversed your identity or crushed your identity familially, but you mentioned you're a journalist. And so you cemented your perception of self as a journalist. So there were, had to be pros and cons here.
1: And it wasn't this cut and dry, but when I, when I, w- the emotional journey was in some ways just as significant as like the research technical writing journey and that emotional journey, I feel like is very similar to the five stages of, uh, loss, you know, that Kubler Ross had identified. Yes, They're never in order anyway, but you go, you do start with denial. That almost always is number one. And you do get to acceptance that almost is number five. But in between, there was depression, there was bargaining. The bargaining side was really interesting because the journalist in me was thinking, I'm going to save my grandfather's reputation. I'm going to prove that this rumor is not true. All right. And then I'm going to exonerate him. So I was ready to kind of go into that whole Nazi time period, which was just just three years in Lithuania, and kind of look into it. But I was thinking I was going to do it like to exonerate my grandfather. So now I'm already bargaining uh, here in a way to kind of get through this work. But it tricked me into investigating that time period, which which funny enough, there's not a lot of research on the Nazi time period in Lithuania. There's a lot of research on the Soviet occupation because that was like a 50 year thing. But there's very, very little on that three year period. So I I did get through that with the bargaining. The depression was really, you know, within that first 10 years, the denial, the depression, I think, kind of went hand in hand. But when I hit anger at Lithuania for covering this up, that's where I started getting a lot of energy. And that's how I was able to kind of mobilize uh, the resources that I had within me to do the writing. and that resolve really hit. Like, I, I really had some good resolve to finish this book, no matter what. So the anger in some ways is as horrible of an emotion it is. It did give me that energy I needed until I could finally get to acceptance. And now it's a more gentle uh, feeling about it.
0: That's so interesting because I've heard other people describe being able to harness the anger as as opposed to Harnessing the anger as a way to just turn on in in a divorce case you know against your spouse and turn that anger which can be very unproductive, if you can harness the anger or harness that high level of emotion and and put it into some positive forward action which is exactly what you were doing you were putting it into the Um, And and the book goes through it very beautifully of of all of the research that you did and and all of the people that you talked to and and all that. So you really harnessed that anger energy, I'll call it, but as a forward mover, not as angry at your grandfather, unproductive, you know where to go with that, Um, angry at the people who kept the secrets Everybody has their reasons for keeping those secrets. So I think it's actually a really interesting insight for people to understand is that you were able to take that anger and move it forward. And that's something that I always talk about. One of the things that, you know, I would love for you to explain, and we discussed it just before we started taping, the title of the book is The Nazi's Granddaughter. Your your grandfather was not a Nazi Per se, but he was a collaborator, and maybe you could describe what you did discover so that people understand about that time period um, and the anti-Semitism that you discovered in Lithuania. Really,
1: yeah, he he definitely collaborated with the Nazis. He one of you know during the Nazi occupation, he was district chief of Šaulė region, which was the second largest region in Lithuania. Yes, the Nazis did come up with, you know, the order to uh, round up the Jews and execute them. That was their idea. But he also participated. I could never find any evidence of him shooting Jews personally himself, but he was much more high level than that. He's what's called a desk murderer. So he collaborated with the Nazis by translating their orders and also writing his own orders that were kind of very detailed to the Lithuanians of what they should do, like how they should appropriate their property, the, the property of the Jews, how they should collect it, uh, who gets what. This is very cut and dry and horrible, but like he knew his Lithuanian audience, and if there was, you know, a Lithuanian dentist who needed dental equipment from a Jew who was not going to need it anymore, he was the one who was like able to connect all that and put all that together. So he really was only a collaborator. My publisher wanted to call, you know, called him the Nazi and I pushed back on that. But authors, you know, when you sign the contract, the publisher gets to choose its own title because they're interested in sales. And they thought this would sell more. Funny enough, My title was Storm in the Land of Rain, and now they're going to, my publisher's going to use that for the paperback. So hopefully that will have more success as well. And I'm already hearing orders are even better for that title than for uh, the Nazi's granddaughter. That's kind of a little writer thing and has not (laughs) much to do with your subject. Yeah, so he was was a high-level collaborator of the Nazi's. And, um, some of the pushback that I got, you know, from a lot of Lithuanians, well, he wasn't really a Nazi. And I said, yeah, but he participated in the worst thing about being a Nazi. You know, it's not the uniform that everybody's against, even though as iconic as it is, it's not the swastika or anything like it's the fact that they killed Jews, right. innocent right. civilians. That was the worst part about being a Nazi. And that's what he did. He would, he embraced that part of it.
0: Right. Well, and you actually, you just described that so perfectly because, well, he may not, as you said, you didn't find any evidence of him actually shooting or killing any Jews directly. He signed orders that led to hundreds, um, thousands of, of Jews being killed. And I, I, that description you just gave about, you know, if he knew a dentist who needed de- dental equipment and there was a Jew who was a dentist... In fact, your grandfather profited from Jewish, was there a home that your grandmother and grandfather lived in that had been a Jewish family's home until they were displaced and and probably killed in a camp? Or there were mass shootings in uh, Lithuania, right, where people were shot and killed. Mass burials.
1: Yeah, in fact, that's uh Lithuania, and like you know, most people know uh the concentration camps that stories, but Lithuania is very different because there were no concentration camps in Lithuania with gas chambers or anything. It was all bullets, it was all death by bullets. And Lithuania had the you know, that that I discovered the highest percentage of Jews killed in all of Europe. If you were Jewish. In Lithuania, during the, you had a 3% chance of survival. 3%. You had a better chance in Germany and Austria of surviving than
0: you did in Lithuania if you were Jewish. That's how bad it
1: was in Lithuania.
0: And your grandfather was a central figure, at, at least, especially as a very high ranking Lithuanian in, in the process. Right. And so, you know, knowing all of that and, and coming to face that and having grown up as the princess of this, this illustrious family with this war hero hero, how did you turn it around to, or come to accept that, you know, that, that your history, your history was very different, who you are in many ways is very different. And your future is different because of your 20 year journey to write this book. So how did, how did you come to terms with all that yourself?
1: It was slow as well, but the writing helped me really see what was going on with myself and with my grandfather. I really, in the end, embraced the truth, as as horrible as it is. The truth, to me, is immutable. It's it's objective. What happened has happened, and you cannot change what happened as much as you would like to, as much of a spin you would like to put on it. And so I hung on to that and, um, you know, once I finally realized that, um, my only job is to write the truth that sort of freed me, uh, of all those negative emotions to focus on just telling the truth, the best of my ability, you know, my little prayer every day was I'll show up and do the writing and the research. And whatever I have to do to get this book out, but God, you're going to have to help with everything else. This, this is so big. I have no idea what's going to happen or how it's going to move forward. I'll just show up and write. You get to do everything else.
0: <laughs> well, and that's, that's worked out because, you know, I, one thing I will say is many people, and again, this will go back to the divorce theme a little bit, but many people, when they find themselves in this situation where history, the history they thought they had about their life does not turn out to be true, very often will adopt that victim role. You know, it's it's a role that's easy to slip into. And I've talked on other episodes about, uh, there are some rewards to being a victim. It's not your fault if you're a victim. Um, people give you sympathy if you're a victim. You do not take a victim's role. You do not, you just very, you know, without blame or an adoption of blame, excuse me, you described what your, you know, your grandfather's role. How did you avoid that victimology aspect of all of this? You
1: know, I never really knew him personally. He did die uh, 14 years before I was born. So, you know, when I got to acceptance, I kind of really just the journalist was taking over at this point and just just kind of disassociating from what my grandfather did. And I was just kind of trying to record what happened. You know, sometimes I did fall into that victimology role because, uh, like I said before, you know, I, I basked in the glory of being the granddaughter of the hero. And then, you know, you can slip into just being ashamed of my grandfather, the Holocaust perpetrator. But I guess the other side of it is that I'm exposing him. So that's helping me disassociate from what I'm not condoning what he did. So that part is very cathartic to me is that I'm exposing what he did. And that feels like a positive action.
0: Well, that's you use the word cathartic. I think that's an an excellent term because you said it earlier. uh, The truth is immutable. We can hide from it. We can deny it. We can pretend it didn't really happen. That doesn't change the fact that it happened. It doesn't change the fact that your marriage wasn't perfect or that you may not have been the perfect spouse at all times either, you know, carrying that forward. And as you just said, there's there's something cathartic about facing the truth, accepting the truth, um, and, and moving forward with it and behind you. And I think that's, you know, a, a strong theme throughout the book um, and the, one of the ones that appealed to me so much. And you've come out on the other side of this experience, a very, you know, a different person, perhaps, to the outside world. I suspect you have grown through this process as well and found some inner strength and um, some positives out of the experience as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm totally not the person I was uh, in the year 2000 when my mom asked me to write this book. It was a long journey. It was a difficult journey, but you know, that's life too. I, I mean, this is just a metaphor for life. Nobody's, nobody really leads a charmed life. Everybody always has something to go through. Uh, I think, but I, um, I definitely grew a lot and I feel great about what I went through. Now at this point, I wouldn't change it for the world. I'm glad I I did. And I, you know, I always, I always have this deathbed scenario in my head. If I'm on my deathbed, will I regret doing this or not regret doing this? And, and this is going to be one of those fleeting moments. I know in the last moments of my death, I'll be happy I did this.
0: Well, I think that right there says it all. And, and, and it ties into so many people say to me, my divorce was the worst thing I ever went through. And it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And in some ways, there's another parallel to what you just said. Um, And uh, what a beautiful sentiment to be able to look back on it in those final moments of our lives and say, I wouldn't change a thing. That was that was the right thing to do. So I I highly recommend everybody go out and read this book. Honestly, I, I could not put it down. Sylvia, how can people get the book? What's the best way?
1: Amazon is probably the easiest way. You can find it on Barnes and Noble and uh, any other online. You can get it through my own website, sylviafoti.com. So it is available just about anywhere. Uh, you could go to a library and find it. If they don't have it, they can order it for you. So, uh it should be easily
0: found. Yeah, it's it's and I will have links to the book in um the show notes and I do want to reiterate that the paperback is coming out June 7th. I will um be I'll post about that when um it comes out. It'll be a couple of months from now. Uh but this episode will be out before then. And if people want to get in touch with you because you do public speaking, you talk about this at uh your experience here and I really feel like it's um, it's an experience, as you just said, it's, it's sort of emblematic to the human condition. It's very topical for the world we live in today. So how can people reach out to you? Probably my email, Lotus Inc. L-O-T-U-S-I-N-K
1: at att.net is probably the best. If you can't remember that, just
0: go to my website, sylviafody.com, and you can find it there too. Perfect. And I will uh, put that in the show notes as well. I have an affinity for Lotuses myself, as you can see there <laughs> in my background, right above my uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I feel like- the- I did notice. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, well, Sylvia, honestly, thank you so much for coming on the show and for talking about this, but honestly, for your bravery in in- you know, writing this book and doing the research, uh, I think there's something we all can learn from your journey, your family's journey, your country's journey. I feel like there are larger lessons in this experience for our world at large right now. Um, so, again, I encourage everybody to go read the book. But thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Susan.